unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives, a battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Beshev. It seems like you cannot open up a newspaper, listen to a foreign policy podcast, or open up Twitter without somebody somewhere sounding off on the emerging geopolitical battle over semiconductors. Semiconductors, which we colloquially refer to as chips, have moved from the periphery to center stage of global high politics. A new book by Pranay Kotasthane and Abhiram Manchi, When the Chips Are Down, A Deep Dive into a Global Crisis, could not have arrived at a more opportune time. The book is a terrific guide to those who want to understand the importance of semiconductors at this geopolitical crossroads. It provides a history of the technology, but also offers us a forward-looking analysis of how the world will balance national security interests with rapid technological change. Pranay is chair of high-tech geopolitics at the Takshashila Institution in Bangalore. Before joining the Institute, he worked as a chip design engineer in two Fortune 500 semiconductor companies. Pranay joined us on the show last year to talk about his book, Missing in Action, Why You Should Care About Public Policy. I'm delighted to welcome him back to the show today. Pranay, thanks for joining and congrats on the book. Thanks so much, Milan. Uh, And what you said in the introduction, right, it was true even for the technology realm. Like 10 years ago, no one in technology even considered semiconductors technology because so much was the dominance of software. So no one cared about these commodified chips, which you just get it from somewhere, you know, didn't matter. But such has been the change that everyone's talking about it now. Well, you were ahead of your time because you worked at two semiconductor companies. So you clearly knew uh, what the deal is. Uh, I want to start this conversation, Pranay, at like a very, very basic level, because I think a lot of people uh, like me, you know, uh, encounter this terminology. We we read n- stories in places like the New York Times or The Economist about the race for semiconductor dominance. But um, again, speaking for myself, don't really understand the specifics of what we're talking about. Um, we don't have a technical understanding of this domain at all. So, so let's just start with like a, a very big question, which is what are semiconductors and what are they used for? Right. So semiconductors, as the name suggests, it refers to a certain material where the conductivity, the electrical conductivity is somewhere between an insulator and a conductor, right? So a conductor is where the electrons flow way too fast, so you cannot control them and hence it's useless for our purposes. Similarly, the insulator is where the movement of electrons is too slow and again, you can't move the electrons from one place to the other, so it is not useful. So semiconductors are in that sweet spot where you can actually control the flow of electrons from one part to the other. Now, this is uh, really foundational and hence semiconductors underlie all our modern electronics and computers and what have you, right? Even cars have many, many semiconductors in them. Right. So now going one level higher, uh, a specific arrangement of a treated semiconductor material can be made into a basic unit, which we call as the transistor. And transistor is where you can control the flow of electrons in one part of the circuit and you can achieve uh, a a change in the current or voltage or any other uh, kind of energy in another part of the circuit. Now, this seems quite quotidian 
but it is actually something very very big you know basically it can act as a switch because you can control the flow of current in another part of the circuit by the uh, current flowing in another part of the circuit right so this is a superpower you can use groups of transistors to amplify current you can use it to store value you can use it to produce signals to produce light like you uh, would see in led bulbs etc right so this tunable nature of semiconductors actually makes them useful for converting or controlling energy across different domains uh, just take an example of an led uh, electricity flows in one part of the circuit using a transistor and this transistor is made up of materials which uh, when uh, triggered in a particular way will release photons which give us light right so this is one simple example in which you are using uh, electricity uh, and, and converting it into light using something called a transistor so this is a basic of semiconductors and there's a lot of physics etc and chemistry which all combine together but I can say that transistor probably is perhaps the greatest invention over the last hundred years, which has made all of these things possible. Now, so we start with the transistor, but what we call colloquially is chips, right? So when you combine many of these transistors, like millions and millions of them, you can achieve very complex functionalities. So just to give you an example of the scale, if you have an Apple phone, uh, the processor chip, which is the central uh, brain of that phone uh, that will have 134 million transistors in per millimeter square of area right so that's the kind of density which is there inside it and because of these transistors you can achieve a lot of functionality that you want uh, and this is the starting point and ICs began in 1950s until then you used to have these transistors which were made manually which were designed manually their connections were made manually and this was not a process which uh, could be scaled up you know uh, imagine if you have to do this for 134 million transistors on per millimeter square but uh, over time there were many technological advancements something called the planar process etc which made this process highly automated highly reliable and hence you could achieve this massive packing of transistors at a miniaturized scale and hence you have these wonders that we take for granted today. I mean, that was beautifully explained, Pranay. I wish that we had had this conversation a couple of years ago would have made <laughs> <laughs> me understand the, the, the situation we're in a, a much better. The book uh, goes over what you call the sort of four pillars of the four elements of the semiconductor supply chain, right? So you have materials, you have design, you have manufacturing, and then you have something called assembly, test, and packaging. And in the book, you explore each of these four components by illustrating how an iPhone processor chip is made. And I think, you know, most of us have an iPhone or an Android or something, you know, similar. Maybe you could just kind of walk our listeners through these four stages, you know, using the sort of phone as an illustration. Yeah. So, uh, as you said, these are like really stylized four stages. Uh, the actual process is far more complicated, but for our purposes, we'll just understand the more core elements of this, right? So let's say you uh, have an Apple iPhone and you want to make the processors, right? So someone in the Apple uh, 
Apple uh, team will decide that, you know, you need to have a camera of this specification, this latency, and it should be this powerful, so on and so forth. Now, finally, to achieve that functionality, you need to make hardware that can achieve that kind of uh, processing speed, power, etc. So to do that, uh, first stage that we generally talk about is the design stage. So in the design stage, what a person will do is they will go and it's literally like building a city, you know, uh, just like an architect builds a city, someone will actually plan out that, you know, the camera module should be on this part of the chip and the processor module should be on that part of the chip. This is how the power lines will be laid. These these are where the drains will be laid, right? So all that process is happens in the design stage where you're literally planning these things out. So you can imagine you're literally planning what those 134 million transistors, how they are going to be placed. Uh, and this obviously, uh, uh, you can't do it manually. So there are software tools which help you to do that. They are called uh, electronic uh, design automation tools. But these are softwares which help people do this. Uh, so this stage is called the semiconductor design stage. It is a very human capital intensive stage. You need a large engineering team to be able to convert something that you want as a functionality for an Apple phone into these uh, hardware blocks which will end up achieving this functionality. So the output of the design stage is finally just a set of electronic files which are literally telling a person where these components are placed and what is the type of connection between them and so on and so forth. So you can imagine a very big file which just tells you that. Uh, now the next stage is where you actually realize this imaginary thing onto something physical. So that's what is called the manufacturing stage. And this, as you can imagine, it is a highly capital intensive stage because you literally have to carve out uh, all these things on at a very, very miniaturized scale, right? So now we are talk about five nanometers or three nanometers. So that roughly indicates the smallest feature size. Uh, so, I mean, a human hair is way, way thicker than that, right? And we are literally talking about a few atoms apart. And that's the... Uh, pitch at which you need to etch out things on a material. So to achieve this functionality, you need purity levels, uh, purity environments of really insane degrees. You need uh, specialized suits for people who uh, go into these uh, environments. You need specialized gases, etc. So all that comes into the materials part. And all of this is uh, happens on a semiconductor, which is generally silicon. Sometimes other semiconductors are also used, but most commonly it is silicon. So that's why the materials part comes in. Uh, you need to be able to produce this silicon ingot and you need to cut it in a specific way and uh, you need to ensure that there are no impurities. Imagine if a hair falls on it, you can, might actually short the circuit and it might not be functional, right? So you need to achieve, you can't even have a dust particle. And so uh, semiconductor manufacturing uh, environments are some of the purest environments in uh, ever made possible by human design, right? There's nothing more pure than that. So you need to achieve that kind of 
functionality and so once you have that material you will etch out uh, that design using the files that the design stage has given and in the manufacturing stage you do this uh, uh, using very specialized machines and that's why it is very costly uh, the tsmc fab in arizona for example which has just started it cost a whopping 12 billion dollars just to start up right that's the kind of cost you require uh, once that is done you have uh, you know big waffles sized disk on which there are chips dies uh, uh, which we call uh, and these uh, uh, functionalities are achieved on that next stage is to actually cut this uh, waffle and all the squares on a waffle you need to package them so that is what is called the assembly test and packaging stage where you cut this uh, uh, disk into the uh, smaller uh, chips and you test them and you package them so if you see any phone inside you will have that black colored ic right black ic which is finally a packaged version you uh, in order to prevent electrostatic uh, uh, currents flowing into it etc you make it safe by packaging it so that's the third stage and this is a labor intensive stage so you do need capital but you need a large amount of people to be able to get this thing done uh, it might not be very high skilled labor but you need both skilled and semi skilled labor at this stage so these are sort of the broad things the output is finally that black square ic which you see uh, it, it's ubiquitous whether it's in your tv or in your washing machine or dishwasher um uh, you know probably i want to ask you a little bit about the moment that we're in today uh you know as we we record at the start of 2024 chips have now been caught up in this larger swirl of geopolitical considerations right i mean it's not for nothing that one of the most widely read books of 2023 was a book called chip wars by the scholar chris miller i must have read a ton of year end kind of best of lists right particularly by people in the policy world and this one was like on every list uh Tell us a little bit, uh, again, just kind of at a macro level, what are some of the underlying geopolitical factors that are fueling this present race that we're experiencing, this race for dominance in the semiconductor space? Yeah. Actually, I, before I say that, I think the word race that you used or a contestation is a better framing, according to me, than a war, because this is not a war in the sense that there is no there won't be a one victor or the other and from an american perspective i think the war framing has a lot to do with aligning domestic vectors to get some things done at home you know so just like there have been wars on drugs and wars on many other poverty. things yeah <laughs> war on poverty this is another that kind of war so it's not necessarily a, a something which is a zero sum game between us and china uh, because the Uh, entire supply chain is so so diversified and globalized so uh, with that out of the way uh, the reason why i think today uh, is when we are talking about semiconductors in uh, i call semiconductors as metacritical uh, not just critical because there are three different kinds of reasons which have converged at this moment to make semiconductors uh, uh, an important thing and that everyone is talking about so the three reasons are one is geopolitical second one is geoeconomic and the third one is technological i'll go through each of them so the geopolitical reason is of course 
course one uh, the four stages that we talked about in that the most crucial stage is manufacturing given the huge capital investment required now the way the industry has evolved that taiwan is a crucial node for advanced semiconductors so whether it is the advanced semiconductors for f35 aircraft or whether it is for your iphone it would be made in tsmc in taiwan now given china taiwan relations worsening uh, there is a fear that if china were to uh, you know invade taiwan or even if not invade if there's a blockade of taiwan what would be the repercussions of that on the wider world is a geopolitical concern motivating a lot of these actions the second geopolitical uh, reason is just us china relations right now given uh, what uh, that uh, relationship is going through uh there is again an idea that can how can us get ahead of china and obviously big nuclear uh nuclear weapons make big conventional conflict unlikely similarly the economic interdependence is so much that you can't even have a huge economic decoupling so technology is one sector where the contestation is going on and within this technological contestations chips are one place where china's technology stack is quite weak actually compared to what it is doing in other spaces so us probably chose this domain as a domain to counter china because it is dominant whereas china is weak right so the rule of strategy being you uh you attack an adversary in a domain where they are weak right so that sort of the geopolitical side of it the second angle is geoeconomic now uh, that was brought to the fore due to the covid-19 pandemic right so uh, you had the situation where uh, you actually chips were available and then uh, because of the covid-19 pandemic Uh, the people who used to place orders at these manufacturing firms just stopped placing orders uh, like the automobile firms largely uh, and when the de- demand again picked up these uh, automobile firms couldn't find any slots from these manufacturing players because uh, all of us were on zoom all of us were on computers so the demand slots for manufacturing were picked up by the producers of laptops computers data centers and so on and so forth so automobile firms realized that hey we need to do something such that this doesn't happen again so and it's not just this uh, the f- because this industry has evolved in such a way where uh, there's comparative advantage based specialization uh, no one country does everything every segment every country has a few companies which have some uh, play in one short segment of that supply chain and they are really really good at it but they are also interdependent on other components now this is great from an economic efficiency point of view but there are also costs of resilience and uh, those things were brought to, brought to the fore during the covid-19 pandemic and many companies started wondering that if there's another covid-19 pandemic if there is an earthquake in japan or if there is a drought in taiwan all these are realistic scenarios what happens to the industry so can we at least try to address this not from a geopolitical lens but from an economic lens can we become more resilient so that's was the second reason and the third reason is technological because whenever we are talking about ai or we are talking about 6g or uh, what have you all of those are 
the underlying technology behind all of them is advanced semiconductors and new architectures. So, for example, on AI chips, we're talking about GPUs, which are made by NVIDIA today, but there might be other architectures which might come up. So, uh, if you want to get advanced in any of the other technological domains, you also need to care about what happens on the semiconductors front. So, these are three things which converged uh, during the last two, three years and hence we are talking about it a lot more. Pranay, I just want to kind of go back to something that you mentioned at the start, because I think it's really important to, to kind of understand how this is all playing out. Uh, we hear a lot about one Taiwanese firm in particular, TSMC. It almost has this kind of mythical status among people who sort of you know, follow this uh, domain. Could you just briefly explain to us why this firm in particular became so essential what it is that they do that is unlike what every other company in this sector uh, has been able to achieve? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. So let me just, again, go back to the four-fold classification that we said, right? Uh, materials uh, and design, manufacturing, and assembly. So TSMC is falls under that manufacturing bucket. So it does manufacturing only. Okay, so earlier when, you know, there used to be an ICs with just 64 transistors in them, all of this could be done by one single company. So Intel could do everything, uh, all of the four stages in-house. But as the costs kept rising and you had to do all of this, uh, 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 then capital costs, as I said, kept rising, you need $12 billion. How many companies can invest that, right? So uh, what happened was this wonderful economic innovation as well, which just said that, you know, you uh, people in Taiwan went and said that you don't need, whether you are AMD or you are uh, NVIDIA, don't worry about the manufacturing part. We'll take care of that for you. So you only worry about producing great design and give us the files and we will uh, finally uh, produce the physical IC for you, right? So this is called some uh, pure play semiconductor foundry. So this is a model which was invented by TSMC. Before that, it was all uh, integrated into one single company. So now this was a big economic innovation it really took out the problems that a small startup would have right imagine if you are a startup you want to make a new chip and you have to invest 12 billion dollars in making a new uh, a new foundry you are not going to ever uh, be start begin to do anything so uh, tsmc said you folks don't worry we will perfect the art of making these chips in physical reality. So they don't do any design. They don't have any intellectual property on the design side, you know. So for example, when Apple makes the uh, chips, it doesn't say made in TSMC or, uh, you know, it's not advertised. It was just that we are knowing about it because of the geopolitical realities. So this is how TSMC became. And uh, this was a new model and it really took off uh, because uh, and it elevated the costs that all these design firms had. Second, TSMC pours massive R&D funding into keeping their manufacturing processes and facilities at the cutting edge, you know. So, uh, for example, they've just committed around $30 billion in R&D investments a few, a couple of years ago. So that's the kind of scale you're talking about, right? Uh, the third one is um, they have a track record of innovation. Uh, 
uh, all of this is finally a recipe you know you need to be able to make maximum number of chips in minimum number of time with minimum failures so it's a recipe which they have perfected there are other companies which have done that but this uh, company has done it better than anyone else and final reason is they are very good at working with other global players like i said manufacturing is just one component you still need materials from japan you need specialized gases from japan you need the machine which actually does the etching from netherlands the company is called asml so you need to be have a culture which can work with many different global players and still produce the best and again tsmc has been able to do that by working with uh, very diverse players across the globe so that's the reason why it is uh, the linchpin of this industry today it's, it's very 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 useful and um and actually links to what i wanted to ask about next which is you know one of the things you point out in the book is that high technology domains, whether it's AI or chips, are increasingly finding a place in various national security conversations we're having around the world. Uh, but what I also learned from your book is that this nexus between national security technological dominance is not necessarily new, right? You have an example in your book. You talk about how President Ronald Reagan, way back in the 1980s, slapped tariffs on Japan in order to boost the American semiconductor industry as it was back then. Um, so the so-called chip wars are race for chip dominance to be more accurate. How new are they really? Is just just kind of like a different episode of a series that we've seen before? Yeah, yeah, it is a different episode of a series, but this is a blockbuster episode. So you can think of it that <laughs> way. Because earlier, uh, like there was a contestation during the Cold War period also. And in fact, uh, USSR tried a lot to copy what uh, was happening in the Silicon Valley. They had their own Silicon City called Zelenograd, which didn't take off. Uh, so it, there was a contestation at that time. The second was between uh, US and Japan when Japan really became the dominant supplier of memory chips and again this was a big threat to the US dominance and uh, then it was resolved but the change was that US and Japan were treaty allies right so they were able to resolve things amicably sort of uh, and both of them agreed so Japan uh, uh, and US agreed that there will be uh, some sort of um, compromise uh, such that both industries can go on together that is not no longer the case today right so US and China are really contesting there is uh, very little possibility of uh, this kind of uh, compromise which could happen with US and Japan. So that's one reason. The second difference is that we are today talking about a very broad range of technologies. It's not just about memory chips as it was the case in US-Japan uh, situation. We are also talking about leading edge processors, equipment, material, even the software which I said about uh, which is used now for making chips. That is also geopoliticized, right? There is contest over that as well. Uh, packaging even. So all all this is much broader than it was earlier. The third one is uh, just uh, industrial policy and subsidies are a lot more today. Uh, and US sees uh, that as an existential threat given what China is doing, maybe underpricing, etc. So that is the third reason. And fourth, the industry is much, much more globalized today than it was 
earlier you know so earlier uh, you could think of us semiconductor industry meaning that everything could happen in the us and you could have an alternate product which everything could be done in japan and those two weren't talking to each other but today that's not possible and anything which happens between us and china or on this front impacts the rest of the world so that is also a significant difference today Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. So, so this leads nicely to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is about the role of the United States. Um, so I want to ask you uh, how they've approached this moment. Uh, when Donald Trump was president, uh, which was not so long ago, his administration took a series of steps that you write in the book set back China's semiconductor industry by 10 to 15 years, uh, by your guess. Tell us a little bit about what his administration did and why were the impacts and why are the impacts so deeply felt in China. Yeah. So I don't think it's just uh, Trump's attempts, uh, but it is also President Trump and B- President Biden's attempts. Both combined have set uh, China back by uh, a decade is what we estimate. Uh, that They can close the gap, but at this stage, we feel they have set them uh, back. So what happened uh, during first President Trump's time was that in May 2019, the Commerce Department blacklisted Huawei uh, and 70 of its affiliates, barring American firms from selling them certain technologies without government approval. So that was the first stage. And this sort of shed light on another bottleneck, which was chips. Uh, And hence, there were, again, some control, export control orders, specifically on Huawei and ZTE, uh, which was another Chinese firm. So this was the first time when you realize that chips can be used as a geopolitical instrument in this particular contestation, right? So what they said is uh, Huawei was trying to really progress and make the most advanced uh, chips. And those advanced chips also have dual use cases, right? So they can be used in military or uh, AI uh, military decision making, etc. So what this did was that it sort of stopped Huawei from first able to access the American market and also to access the chips which are really required to make some of these equipment. So that was the first step. And once the U.S. saw that there is some success in this method, uh, the Biden administration doubled down on it, right? So that was sort of uh, the next step where it was formalized into uh, a a proper export control. There were uh, rules put in place and all that. So that happened uh, uh, subsequently. Uh, So yeah, uh, this is the way... So it started in 2019, uh, and then the Biden administration continued with it. So uh, that's a a nice transition to asking about this administration, which is in power in Washington today. Um, It seems like they came in and did two things, uh, one set of actions that were kind of negative, continuing what, what Trump did, and the other that were positive. So on the negative side, it took additional steps 
to further restrict China's tech advantage, right? They came up with this tagline, right, of having a a small yard with a high fence, right, to indicate that there would be a certain set of technologies that they would like to restrict um, uh, in order to not give due advantage to geopolitical rivals and <laughs> uh, by turn giving us uh, Americans an advantage. Um, but on the positive side, the Biden administration did something else, of course, uh, with the help of the Congress, which was to pass the Chips and Science Act, which pumped in $52 billion into domestic chip manufacturing in the United States. Tell us a little bit about the positive side. You know, how much of a game changer do you think that piece of legislation actually was? Right. So, uh, as I said, right, so the chip war, again, the central point of that was this, right? So can you get domestic vectors aligned so that you are pushing uh, and becoming more competitive? So Chips and Science Act is the central node of that strategy, right? So uh, that came first, that came on August 9, 2022. And then the uh, export controls came on October 7th, 2022, right? So the first part was to re-energize the American semiconductor industry. Uh, and remember, there were a lot of uh, companies. For example, Intel had has made a lot of investment in China. It also uh, was uh, invested into, you know, it had fabs there, manufacturing facilities. It also was investing into cutting-edge design firms there. So a lot of these semiconductor companies were going back and telling to the U.S. government that if you want us to stay in the U.S., you better give us something in return. Otherwise, there are other options in other places. So this uh, Chips and Science Act had been brewing for quite some time, at least two years. I have seen this being talked about. Finally, it uh, passed in August 9, where the idea is to one, support the advanced semiconductor design part, advanced semiconductor manufacturing part, and also some part of the trailing semiconductor part, you know, the old chips, which are not so strategic, but still you want to uh, develop things there. So a bunch of things are being done under the Chips and Science Act. There is also uh, a new center, National uh, Semiconductor Technology Center, which is being developed. So the focus of all that is to identify what will be the semiconductor technology five, seven, eight years from now and decide whether the US can take a lead in that or not. So uh, it goes all the way uh, across all the four things we talked about, you know, materials, design, manufacturing, packaging, also the software which goes into that. For example, DARPA has a project to identify open source alternatives uh, which can you know really quicken the pace of the design process uh, also there are concerns that there are some, uh, can there be hardware espionage you know so is china bugging the chips uh, or bugging the boards on which chip rests so there is an electronic resurgence initiative by the darpa to again see whether you have hardware security built in and such espionage attempts can be detected so all these are sort of coming together in in the Chips and Science Act. I want to bring India into this conversation at the end of the day. This is still a podcast about uh, Indian politics and Indian public policy. Uh, in the book, you recount three attempts by India to try and build a domestic semiconductor industry. And before we get into version 3.0, which is the Modi government's kind of latest attempt, 
Take us back and help us understand the previous two efforts. What did the government seek to do? And why is it that you and your co-author think that they failed? Right. So, first of all, India is a very big uh, node of the semiconductor supply chain. Uh, me being one of the examples, like there are 20%, uh, the government estimates that 20% of the design engineers of the world are in India. You know, So most of them are working for MNCs, uh, American firms or uh, Taiwanese firms. So there is very little Indian intellectual property, but a lot of Indian talent, which is designing chips uh, for the world you know so um, there are certain many estimates that almost nine out of ten chips which are made across the world there will be some indian part or design work which would have happened uh, in the process but and 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 this doesn't even include presumably indian engineers who are living in places like silicon valley or other places who are involved right yeah I, I, that i haven't even included so this i'm purely including just the people who are based out of india you know yeah. so uh, that's the kind of uh, involvement so india in the design segment which is the human capital intensive stage is been doing well in fact the first mnc to set up shop in bangalore was a semiconductor company not a software company right uh, texas instruments in 85 so that's the uh, so that's one segment where india has a role and it is a crucial note but where india has failed is in the manufacturing and assembly segment that is where you have no presence there is there are zero commercial manufacturing facilities for chips in india so that's what we were trying to address why india has failed there uh, and what we found is you know we tried to sort of divide india's many many experiments on this into three phases so for the first phase was what we called by the government and for the government so this was the pre-1991 era Milan, which you very well know how the situation was there were two government firms which were only licensed to make these chips and because they were government firms competition for government firms was anathema right like how can two firms make the same thing it was seen as wastage so eventually the government said that no only one of these firms should make chips the other was restricted to doing the integration and uh, higher electronics assembly and that firm again you see a familiar situation there that because they are government firms, uh, as costs kept rising of manufacturing, uh, you needed to keep pumping in money constantly. And the only way you can recoup that investment is when you are manufacturing globally, mass scale, for uh, so that you can produce a lot of revenue, right? But when you are a government firm, why would you export? What's the incentive? So these government firms just uh, restricted themselves to satisfying the needs of the space or the defense sector, which were small players. Uh, I mean, their demands were not high. So they were able to reliably provide for them, but nothing in the commercial uh, segment right also there were huge import restrictions because as you know foreign exchange was a very precious commodity back then so because of limited foreign exchange these companies couldn't import a lot of equipment so even though they started almost at the same level as Taiwan, uh, you know, and in fact, they also got technology transfer from some U.S. firms, which were the same U.S. firms that gave technology transfers to Taiwanese companies. So the starting points are pretty similar, but because of the way the pol public policy environment was back then, these firms 
couldn't go ahead and they sort of just fell away and by the late 1980s the gap really widened between the Taiwanese firms and the Indian firms so that was one phase uh, the second phase is what we call the uh, phase uh, we call it the unease of doing business right so that is where you have this stage um, roughly from the 2000s and 2005 etc again the talk started that we need to do something in manufacturing and that was also the golden period for india's growth right 2002 to 2007 so there were many attempts made during that period also uh, to start off new firms. Um, there was one uh, fab city which was supposed to be planned in Hyderabad uh, again in 2006. Um, some of the you know, AMD was one company which was involved in this. So uh, there was again an energy. Uh, also there was Chandrababu Naidu at that time, uh, you know, wanted to get this done in Hyderabad, etc. Uh, so they wanted to start an assembly plant but again by the time 2008 happened and after 2008 amd also changed its business model so it went fell up uh, by the side uh, there were another two attempts made in 2014 uh, similar story uh, in some investors are initially interested they promise some money big investments are made but then they uh, uh, fell by in after some time in 2015 again a u.s firm called cricket semiconductors announced a plan to make a fab in madhya pradesh and again that fell down so what the common thread in the second phase is what you see is uh, there were in 2012, as you know, there was this huge Vodafone retrospective taxation case. So that's just an illustration which told people and spooked the investors, you know, because these chip uh, fab, if you want to start the manufacturing facility today, the first chip will be produced three, four years down the line. You know, that's the scale it requires to just build this. So no investor is going to put money when the policy environment is uncertain, when the tax environment is uncertain. Uh, when the trade environment is uncertain. So this was the phase where we were going through that churn where all three were uh, a bit shaky and hence none of the big investors who could have uh, invested uh, came by. So th that is how I would summarize the second stage. So now we come to the third stage, version 3.0. And, you know, India, like many other countries, the United States, Europe and others, realizes that uh, once again, it has to step up its game, particularly in light of the COVID-19 experience, worsening relations with China, many of the geopolitical, geoeconomic and technological factors you alluded to earlier. What is the Modi government doing? Uh, what do you think it's getting right? And where might it be off the mark? Yeah. So... Uh... The government is very interested in this domain. Uh, in fact, both the ministers of Meti are know a lot about chip design. So one of them has been a chip design engineer. You know, so it's very rare for a minister to be a chip. Designer. One of your tribe. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they uh, do understand the fact. So what the, the difference between the 
version 2 and version 3 is one uh, the government is putting a lot more upfront capital investment so like i said earlier the government did give subsidies but they were in the form of reimbursement so they said you go and start a fab and we'll give you a pli production linked incentive kind of uh, benefit you know uh, so no firm was interested because those four years that it takes to build anything could happen uh, but this time the government is saying that We'll give you upfront capital support while you're building the fab. So that's like one uh, big difference. The second big difference is the government is trying to play across the entire uh, uh, segments of the supply chain. So there are some policies for design. There are some policies for assembly. There are some policies for manufacturing, so on and so forth. So this kind of comprehensive strategy wasn't there earlier. Uh, earlier, it was... Uh, just broken into different parts and it wasn't integrated the way it is. So this is sort of things which are being done specifically um, and there are many details to it but I'm not going into them. Uh, the the second part is what are the general things done, right? Like I, I, I don't think semiconductor investment is very, very different from, uh, you know, any large scale manufacturing setup. You know, it's just that India is poor at many large scale manufacturing things. And so is the case with semiconductors. So there are a whole set of things you need to do to just improve the policy, tax and uh, trade environment. So that's what the GST is a big reform. I think in that sense, it helps helps uh, to have some predictability in the tax environment. The ease of doing business is also sort of improving, uh, but uh, that is also on the positive side. But where we have sort of gone back is on the trade environment. As you know, we have become more protectionist. And because this is a globalized semiconductor industry, the, with trade protectionism, you can't get this industry up because you will need to do imports to do any exports. You need to import chips to do assembly and then send it back. So you need to have very good FTA arrangements or you need to be a part of RCEP or TPP or any of these big formations, which India is not a part of. So that is one thing which we are lacking. Uh, so that's how I would characterize it. But from a priority, uh, broadly from a semiconductor specific angle, I think they are in the right direction, but their priorities are a bit misplaced. For example, there's a lot of effort in trying to get this big, nice flashy fab, which you know can be shown to the world that India has uh, started its journey. But uh, it will only achieve the goal of reducing our vulnerability to a small extent you know maybe you will need to do this over 20 30 years to get to somewhere where you have a geopolitical leverage the geopolitical leverage can be achieved only through the design stage where i already said india has a comparative advantage so in my assessment the priority should be a lot more on the design to ensure that our human capital improves a lot that the people across the world semiconductor design space are indians they are well trained such that we can quickly go to the stage where indian made chips with Indian intellectual property emerge fast. Uh, so right now, it's not the most priority area because design is not a flashy thing which can be projected. You know, it, they are just some engineers sitting around a room and producing these files. But fabs are some things which all politicians across the world like. So there's a lot more focus on that. So, Pranay, I want to ask you kind of two things uh, somewhat related before we end this conversation. Uh, and they're both about the future. 
Um, in thinking about kind of semiconductor geopolitics, uh, what are some of the most important geopolitical trends on the horizon that are going to shape how this space pans out, right? I mean, obviously, we don't have a crystal ball. You don't have a crystal ball. I don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen. But if, as you kind of enumerate, you know, the, the top list of things that you would worry about or that would keep you up at night, um, what would they be? Yeah, I think China-Taiwan relations is definitely one from a geopolitical perspective is something that uh, I worry about that will determine this. Uh, the other things are how I see is what is the strategic objective that nation states want to achieve through this instrument. So we call it silicon craft in the sense that uh, there are certain kinds of politico-economic instruments that you can use in this domain. And all of them depend on what is it that the nation state wants to achieve. So do they want to deny uh, semiconductors to its adversary? Or do they want to just outpace the adversary? Or do they want to generally increase the supply chain resilience, you know. So all of these are important factors which will determine where this goes. I fear that a lot of focus is on denial currently and uh, that denial is very difficult to achieve. And even if you try to achieve, uh, there can be disproportionate breakthroughs in another domain, right? You're motivating uh, uh, your adversary to find alternative ways to uh, get ahead. So maybe you can keep the uh, adversary uh, behind by a few years, but it will not achieve some big geopolitical goal uh, in any case. So uh, from that sense, I fear that there's a lot of focus on denial and it's difficult to achieve denial in such a globalized environment. So that's what I would say. So uh, I want to end by asking you about one objective that gets talked a lot about, um, uh, but you're skeptical of, as you just said, uh, which is a sort of a decoupling of the of the semiconductor industry, right? I mean, whether it's the EU, the United States, India, eliminating one's foreign dependence uh, in this area is kind of a non-starter, right? And one of the things you say at the very end of the book is that countries sooner or later will realize that, quote, semiconductor interdependence is a boon, not a bane, end quote. Um, tell us why you kind of leave readers uh, with this uh, final piece of wisdom. Yeah. So uh, I, I always say that, you know, multilateralism in this domain is a necessity and not a choice. Uh, so it's not possible for even the U.S. to make all its chips by its own. In fact, you would be surprised to know that Taiwan, uh, which is which we talked about a lot, its biggest exports are chips, but its biggest imports are also chips. You know, so there is no nation state which can do this on its own, you need to have this interdependence going. And in fact, US and China are also not decoupling in semiconductors. I, I always say that's why it's not a war because they're, they are trying to decouple only on the most advanced chips, you know, the five nanometers and below. But all on, on the others, the business is as usual because US companies can't survive without Chinese demand and Chinese companies can't survive without accessing the US market either. So there is no decoupling happening 
on the semiconductor scale also it's on one small advanced semiconductor side so that's one but because this has become so geopolitical and national security agenda every nation state is putting massive subsidies to build its own domestic national champions right now the interesting part about this is uh, that it is actually leading to removing the advantages that happened because of the comparative advantage based specialization right so just to give you an example tsmc uh, builds the same chip in taiwan and also makes the same chip let's say in arizona the same chip would cost 40% higher in arizona versus what it costs in taiwan so just imagine a us company why would it buy something from the arizona plant when it can buy the same thing from taiwan right uh, the same company but why would it so the only way you can make that happen is when you have local sourcing mandates so imagine a world where the us companies are told that before national security reasons you must buy american and buy an american chip uh, so that we might go into that uh, domain then uh, to make things uh, further tough uh, remember these fabs are the investment which i said 12 billion dollars is not a one time investment if you want from 5 nanometers to transition to 3 nanometers you need to put another billion dollars of investment so all those kinds of things make it very difficult for governments to keep pumping money into a project when there is no economic logic happening right so because of this i feel that uh, nation states will realize uh, that this uh, semiconductor industry is a huge net positive for everyone you know this should actually be in the domain of un or something like that where this semiconductor industry is a net positive for everyone in the world and it is important to preserve uh, its uh, advantages as it ex exists today given the globalization instead of trying to do everything at home so if nation states go down this path the only way i see is they'll go into local sourcing mandates repeated investment and they'll realize that all of this doesn't get you anything uh, and it is much costly and this semiconductor industry goes through uh, cycles uh, we are seeing a huge uh, you know sort of uh, euphoria because of the things that happened over the last 2 3 years but you will see a downturn as well and when that happens uh, all these logic will be tested severely and i i think that we have already hit the peak of semiconductor industry revenue and over time we'll realize and hopefully go back to a world where interdependence works just fine with some adjustments so that we have better security built in we have better ways to detect that uh, if someone is trying to do espionage etc there are ways to do that without having to even think of decoupling so pranay it was an excellent answer not a great answer if you want to boost sales of your books because <laughs> it would be much better if this race in, in in crisis continues um you were on the show last year talking about your book missing in action you're on this year talking about your book uh when the chips are down but you have a new book another book coming out um just give us your quick kind of elevator pitch tell us a little bit about what your what your new book is about yeah so our book is called we the citizens uh, strengthening the indian republic uh, it's by khyati pathak anupam manur and me and it's a uh, graphic uh, 
narrative on public policy and we're trying to explain all the concepts that we talk about in public policy using a new format uh, and, and the aim is to reach to more people and more Indians specifically. I just want to be very uh, clear that uh, I made the mistake before we started recording of calling this a children's book. And Pranay thankfully <laughs> corrected me. This is not a children's book. It is a graphic narrative book. It is meant for people of all ages. Um, but to help us uh, understand some of these concepts, they have introduced graphics. It, it reminds me of the time when I met a friend of a friend who is um, uh, worked in animation, and I called him. Um, uh, uh, what did I call him? I called him uh, uh, somebody who works on comic strips or something, and he got really upset. He said, "I'm an animator," um, and so uh, I will try not to repeat this mistake again. Uh, the guest, my guest on the show this week, is the scholar Prane Kothasane. He's the chair of high tech geopolitics at the Takshila Institution in Bangalore. And with Abhiram Munchi, he is the author of When the Chips Are Down, A Deep Dive into a Global Crisis. It's a terrific primer for anyone who is struggling to keep up with this race for chips that seems to be sweeping the world. Pranit, thank you so much for the book and thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for inviting me, Mila. Great to be here. Thank you. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on hdsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we mentioned on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthemasha.com. Tim Martin is our audio engineer and Mira Verghese is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 